Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is writing for Will, and our guest is Bill Hancock. After the death of his son, Will, in the 2001 airplane crash that took the lives of 10 members of the Oakland State basketball team. Oklahoma. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Mom. Of the Oklahoma State basketball team, survival became a familiar word in Bill Hancock's vocabulary. Even being director of the NCAA, the Final Four men's basketball tournament could not shake his despair, and so he decided to return to his roots as an outdoorsman and marathon runner by riding his bicycle across the country on the 2,747-mile journey from the West Coast to the East Coast. This journey became more than a distraction from grief. It became a pilgrimage. Bill's book, Riding with the Blue Moth, chronicles his ride. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you. It's it's an honor to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Bill. And Heidi and I both absolutely loved your book. It's well, uh, just an incredible book. Thank you so much. So well written. And, well, and, it, and it read like a novel. It really read like a novel. I was at first, you know, not. I was going to scan it and skim it. I have to be honest, Bill. <laughs> and I started reading it, and I got completely engrossed in it, and I couldn't put it down. You know, I think isn't it true that truth is really stranger than fiction? Absolutely. Well, let's tell. Uh, could you tell our little uh, our listeners a little bit about your son and what a name he had? His name was William Ransom Hancock III. Yes, uh, he was the joy of our lives. Uh, he and his brother Nate, who's four years younger, um, <laughs> Will was the perfect child and um, grew up to be quite an adult. We were certainly proud of him. Uh, he worked. He followed my footsteps. I, I do work in sports. I was director of the Final Four. And that March Madness, right? March Madness. Isn't that what they call it? Yes. And, <laughs> and now I'm. Uh, I went over to football. I'm now the administrator for. The Bowl Championship Series, the, the BCS, ah. which is a college football event. And oh, wow. I've been very lucky to have spent my career in athletics, and uh, Will followed in my footsteps, and that is how he wound up at Oklahoma State University as the PR director, and uh, I wound up on that, uh, on, that, on that airplane, on that, that awful night that so many of us have to face. Yeah, we certainly heard about it in the news. Uh, it was a snowstorm, was it? Yes, there was a snowstorm. There was ice probably on the wings of the plane. And uh, actually, we understand the plane, the crash happened in Colorado, but we understand the plane could have flown to New York City and back. Um, but the pilot uh, became disoriented in the, in the snow and the clouds and actually uh, flew the plane into the ground. Ah, that's awful. And 10 people died? 10 people, yes. Horrible. Now, now tell us, uh, you know, the book is very interesting because uh, it intersperses uh, your son's Will's life uh, with your feelings about what happened and then also about about just being a bike rider. If you were a bike rider, um, the book would be an important, interesting book. So um, those early days, tell us about your early days of grief and how you got inspired to move on to do this bike trip. It was... Like like we all have, it was we were paralyzed, and you know all you can do is get out of bed. And I and someone said to me, Bill, just put one foot in front of the other. 
Yeah, you wrote a little bit about that in the book. Could you read a little piece of that? Um, and this was shortly after Will was killed in the airplane crash. Yes, I can. Um, I tried to go for a run. I'm a marathon runner, and I tried to go for a run, but I halted on a country road in tears because running was too familiar, it was too hopeful, and, and too ordinary. Simple habits, long ingrained, became puzzles. I forgot the steps in brushing my teeth. Phone numbers and the names of acquaintances eluded me. Uh, life's customs, from music to work to attending church, became draining emotional distractions. And and the great hymns made me weep. Wow, that's a, that says so much. Just that paragraph. I mean, I, I love the piece about that. Um, you forgot the steps in brushing your teeth. So <laughs> basic. Absolutely. And there were time, There was. Something in the book where you talk about, as we're saying right now, the early stages of grief, and you talked about being so overwhelmed with feelings that it, I think you said it was almost like throwing up at one point. Yeah, I, I remember that. That was that. That came from a phone call from someone who touched me in such a way that I, I really did. I thought I was going to become nauseous, uh, nauseated on on the phone, mm-hmm. and. Me, I'm a person who likes to know what I'm going to be having for lunch next week and where I'm going to be at 11 o'clock in the morning next month. Well, all this threw that out the window. That there was nothing certain about the future. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, one place, and also you talk about that it's like having a cup for you and your wife Nikki. It was like having a cup filled with to the already to the top, and anything sent it right over into tears. Yes, and and I, I did. I do know that, that I was very lucky that I could cry, and I did cry a lot. And I have talked to people that, that didn't, that for some reason they were told that crying was not a good thing. Well, gosh, that's so silly. I mean, the, 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 to get that emotion out is something that we all have to do. So. Well, and I love the sportsmen that were able to come up to you. I mean, these were masculine guys in your field and were able to, to cry with you. And yeah. they would hug you, and they'd have tears in their eyes. I thought that was pretty powerful. Yep, I, I really work in a world of, of, of testosterone, <laughs> tough people, mm-hmm. macho people, and yet the many, many of them were reduced to tears right along with me. Mm-hmm. And don't, do you think that the macho also the other side of it is tears? That because they're in that uh, the field of tough guys, they're also able to cry. I don't know. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and also. The one thing that that is central to all this is that we're not alone. None of us in our grief is alone. And I discovered that many of those macho guys had walked the same path that I that I was walking. Mm-hmm. And so my my starting to walk it elicited their own feelings, and that was the reason for many of their own own tears. Was I know you you mentioned some people like uh, Steve Owens who uh, received the Heisman Trophy that he had lost a child, and uh, we're going to be interviewing Eric Hippel. Do you know Eric Hippel? He was the uh, Detroit Lions um, yeah, quarterback, and his son uh, died by suicide. He's going to be on our show on February 1st, and I love the title of the show. Eric uh, decided on it. It's Real Men Do Cry. Oh, that's oh, good. Oh, boy, that, what, what a beautiful message that is. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, tell us a little bit about your family. Let's see you. Uh, Will was married to Karen. Right, yes, and then and had a two-month-old daughter, Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andy is now in kindergarten. 
And she loves for us to talk about her daddy, which we, we do as often as we can. Um, and then I have my wife, Nikki, who's a retired high school English teacher. And she'd won an award, I remember reading. So. Yes, she was Kansas State Teacher of the Year a couple years ago. And then our, our other son, Nate, uh, was four years older than Will, and his wife, Kristen. And Nate has uh, two boys, uh, both born after we lost Will. Um, their older son, they named him William. Uh, and everyone else calls him Will, uh, but we can't do it. Nikki and I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So we call him William. And so he knows he has two names. He's Will to some people, and he's William to his nana and granddad. Now, it's been five years since Will was killed, is that right? It's been five years. So you've had a lot happen in the past five years. Yes, we really have. Um, we've learned that, that life goes on, and we've learned to do our best. And But the most magical thing that's happened to me was uh, the publication of the book, frankly. Uh-huh. I... I it, the, the book has opened my eyes to the fact, again, that we're not alone. And every every day, almost, I get a card or an email or a phone call from a stranger who says, Mr. Hancock, this book has changed my life. Wow. And I just remember during those early days when I was so helpless and leaning on other people that I never thought that now that, now that I would grow to be the mentor and sort of the guiding light for others who have come across to what well, the, I like to call our side of the fence. Right. Well, the other part that is really wonderful about it, too, is that it gives people who are maybe just friends or didn't even think about uh, people having children die a window in to look, um, you know, at it in a way that they can read and, you know, uh, bike ride and that kind of thing. It's wonderful. Tell me how you got the name. Tell that's, our that's what I want to know. Well, I love the name. The, the Blue Moth is such an interesting name, and I'm so happy with the way that came out. And but, give us that title again, Riding with the Blue Moth. Riding with the Blue Moth. And wonderful picture on the front of the book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. My wife took that photo. Very good. That's me on the front. It's a great, it's, it's a wonderful look on the book. So could you tell us about um, about how you got the title for this? Yes, the Blue Moth came to me because the way the grief came in waves reminded me of the cold fronts that come into the plains in the winter. And, you know, a front comes through and it gets very cold and then eventually it gets warm again. But another another front's going to come. So it, they come in waves. And those fronts are known as blue northers because they, blink, they bring dark purple skies when the front comes in. Well, when I was a child, my grandmother, she was from North Carolina, <laughs> and she said, blue nava. She said, we're going to have a blue nava tomorrow. Well, I thought when she said nava... I thought she was saying moth. <laughs> so when I looked for a way, to, and, and so I couldn't figure out what she meant when she said, we're going to have a blue moth tomorrow. Well, when I was looking for a way to describe the grief and the waves, the blue moth came to me as, as a derivation from blue norther. And, and then the blue moth, it, it just grew in my mind and, and into this creature that fluttered in and out of our lives, you know, like a moth goes to a, a lamppost. Uh-huh. And when the, when the blue moth of grief was with me, I learned that it was going to go away. And it'll, it'll fly out of your life, but it's always going to come back. And now, even five and going on six years later, I, I know that. I know the moth is coming. Uh, he came to me this morning, landed on my shoulder, kind of pecked away on my ear. But I also always know that he's going to go away. Uh-huh. So that's what the blue moth is. I, I love that analogy, and I love how in the book you talk about 
how the blue moth is following you at times and how it won't leave you alone at times and how you're trying to get rid of it. It's just such a presence. Well, thank you. And, of course, I, I learned, I have learned that you welcome the blue moth. You, uh-huh. it, it's a reminder of your son and how much you loved him, and it's a, it's a part of life. Don't you think the, the early fears about the blue moth or depression is that you won't be able to have it leave? Exactly. That's mm-hmm. the problem. You think you're going to feel that way forever. You think the moth is going to be there forever. And then just to learn, the, the, the crossing into the knowledge of learning that the moth is going to go away is such an important step in all of this. And then, of course, you also have to know that it's going to come back. So right. when it's gone, uh-huh. you know it's going to come back. And it's okay. And it's okay. Okay. Yeah, I know in the book you wrote this about dreams, and I, I thought this was great. Uh, you said, I had hoped, this is early on, that biking would enrich my middle life, but I gave up those dreams after Will's death, or so I thought. <laughs> and that, I thought that was wonderful because we early on give up all our dreams, right, those first few weeks? Yes, we were just paralyzed, and, and we give up everything, including all hope. Mm-hmm. And I remember people telling me, Bill, there, there is hope out there. Well, I didn't believe it, of course. I didn't want to believe it. But, you know, it's so true, and it, I think it's the central message of the book that there is hope, and we can all find it, and, and we all do find it. And you will be able to, you'll have new dreams. You'll dream new dreams, but it's very hard in the beginning to believe that. You know, I, I picked up a little guilt in your book, which uh, I kind of smiled at because we all have it. Here you are on your ride. I don't know what day this was. But um, you s- started thinking about how you were guilty because you hadn't played ping pong with Will when he asked you to. I, oh, you were in Meridian, Mississippi. <laughs> You'd gone over 2,000 miles, and suddenly that guilt hit you. Yeah, it just and it, those kind of things hit you whenever you least expect it. Uh, and they're such funny little stories when you think about it, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. And that was when one time Will was 11 years old and he wanted to play ping pong and I was too busy with something and I said, oh, I can't do it. Right. And I just, that disappointment in his eyes has stayed with me ever yep. since then. So that, those little things will hit us. So so I want to backtrack for a minute, Bill and Gloria, and ask, as we're talking about the bike right now, I would like to know how long after Will's death, Bill, did you start, get, did you get on your bike and start riding? About two months later. I two months later, because I was struck by the fact that it said you were not in shape because eating was your only source of comfort. Yes, you know, we all look for some, some comfort, and for me it was eating. And as an athlete, uh, you know, I always watched what I ate, but I, that, I just completely abandoned that. Um, but, I, you know, I was looking for something normal, and I thought, you know what, go back to riding your bike and go back to running. See if that'll help. And almost as much for me as try, was trying to be an example for our daughter-in-law and our granddaughter and, and Will's friends. So, I so, thought, so it was two months after that you started, and I love the first day when you put what was it your bike pedal into the ocean, your bike your bike tire. Yeah, yeah. It was two months after that I decided to, to start running and riding again, and the bike ride began about six months after. Mm-hmm. And, but what you do as a tradition in, in bike riding is you put your rear wheel in the Atlantic and then you drive all, in the Pacific that is, and then you drive all the way to the Atlantic and then put your front wheel in the Atlantic and that's the symbolic end. So your bike has made the trip from the Pacific to the, 
clear across to the Atlantic. And it was that first day, I'm sorry, Mom, it was that first day that a woman came up to you and said, who are you riding for? <laughs> this lady on she the beach. She was adamant. In California, she was adamant. <laughs> she wouldn't leave me alone, and she said, what's your cause? What are you riding for? And I, I kept saying, I'm just out for a bike ride. I don't know. I don't have a cause. <laughs> and she kept saying, you've got to ride for MS or for heart disease or breast cancer or something. And I, I, I just kept saying, I don't have a cause. I'm just out for fun. Leave me alone. Don't bother me, lady. Well, I became, it, it, it's clear now when I finished that the, the cause was for me to learn more about myself and also to learn that I could help others mm-hmm. who are in our shoes. But I didn't know that when I started. Right. And, and it's funny, I, I thought, I wrote down this title, Writing for Will, why did I do that? And you know what, I think in a way we do write, uh, or we get back on for our children, uh, for life, and we know that's what they'd want us to do. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, no question about it. And, you know, wherever Will is, and I, I know he's in heaven, he's watching, and he's mm-hmm. saying, Dad, live, live. And like you said, he was with you in spirit throughout your bike journey. In so many places, he in, was with you. In so many places. And I remember I was riding up a long hill in Arizona, and a gust of wind hit me from the from behind. And now, what's the name of that hill? Yarno. Yep. Well, this was a hill leading up to the Mugion Rim. Okay. And, and you felt I, him behind you, right? I felt him behind me. Yeah, Heidi, tell him your story I of was, uh, yeah, this, Outward Bound. This, there, there's a parallel between what you did and what I did. Three months after my brother died, I went on a survival course in Colorado called Colorado Outward Bound. And at the time, I was living in New York, but I really wanted to do this. My brother had done it. And I also, it was so interesting reading that, because I also was going up a very, very steep hill, was very exhausted, and felt my brother's presence and felt him pushing me up that hill, just wow. as you had with Will. Wow. I really, yeah. That's and awesome. felt, him, felt him with me during the whole Outward Bound experience, just as you had felt Will with you. You know, the, the fact is we don't know what's out there. We think we have this physical being and these houses and telephones and books, and, but we don't understand half the spiritual part of it. Absolutely. Winston Churchill called it the black dog. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, he said the black dog would visit him. Oh, my. So riding uh, the blue moth uh, may visit, but I think what Winston Churchill learned as well as Bill is that, that this can also befriend you, and it's not something, depression is something that does come and go. Um, I wanted to, it's a wonderful book. I would highly recommend to our uh, listening audience that they get it for themselves and for friends, uh, a gift for the holidays, whatever. It's a wonderful book. And Bill, could you tell us how they would get a hold of your book and give us your website? Yes, the book's available on Amazon.com, and also there's a website that talks a lot about grief and, and the book itself, and it's just writingwiththebluemoth.com. And there is uh, there's a contact us section in there, and that's how most of the people find out about my email. And I've just developed some wonderful relationships. And you know, this is a little bit like what what Compassionate Friends is all about: is that it gives us a chance to connect with others, to realize that we're not alone. Absolutely, and uh, it's it's wonderful. Now Heidi and I are out uh, what 23 years, Heidi, and and you are what it's been uh, six since Will died. Yes. So uh, it's wonderful when we all get together and we can see where we've moved, progressed, or you know, and help others also. So uh, I think Bill's hoping that you might, if you uh, would like to contact him, that you go on on the website. Well, I loved uh, the way you've organized the book and how you make these wonderful little comments to your granddaughter 
at, at the end of the book, Andy, I mean, at the end of each chapter. How did you decide to do that? And tell us about the emails you've got in there. Well, when I was doing the bike ride, I, I sent uh, journals to, to Karen, Will's widow, and also uh, Nate and his wife, our other son, ah. and some of our friends. And every day, I, I, because I just wanted them to know how we were doing on the bike ride. And, well, when I got finished, um, by the time I finished, you know how email works, there were probably 500 people receiving the journals every day. And one of those people said to me, Bill, you should write a book. This message is important. And um, I, 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 I initially said, no, I can't do that. I can't. There's too much personal in here, too many private thoughts. But eventually I did write the book, and, and the rest is history, I suppose. But I thought every day I learned so much about the world, about our country, what wonderful people there are out there, and also about grief. That I, And I thought, you know what, I need to share some of these things I learned with people, primarily our granddaughter, Andy, who certainly going, has, obviously has to grow up without her dad. And so every day at the end of each chapter is a message to Andy. And who is who is now six, uh, almost six years old, and someday I can't wait for her to get old enough that where she can read this book and understand what we all went through, and also understand how much her dad loved her and how much we love her. Uh, it's a wonderful thing for her. I I like that. Didn't didn't um, a friend of yours send the emails to an editor or something? I mean, yeah, and say um, it would be an interesting book. A friend did send them to an editor, and the editor. Uh, came back and I had I just talked about the bike ride in the book at that point and the editor came back and said Bill this is wonderful but you have to tell about those first weeks after the accident otherwise we're not going to be able to gauge how how much progress you made That's well that was so painful I said I just can't do it I'm not right. going to do it and set the book aside for a long time but eventually decided you know and how long did you set it aside probably six months. And how long had it been out before you started writing it uh, as a book? You had the material. Have probably a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of time went by, and I was just so glad that I had the notes that I'd taken for the journals, and so th- thankful for this editor who who opened my eyes to the fact that I just had to tell. Um, and what I've learned, one thing is that lots of times, <clears throat> men are not able to address their feelings. That much of what is written. And this genre is written by women, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm, I hope I'm, I'm able to reach some of the men out there. I'm, I know from the cards and the phone calls and emails that I am reaching men, and I think that's so important because the moms and dads, we're all in this together. Absolutely. Well, and I think you, you address the fact that, you know, you as a man also did a lot of your grieving in private, a lot of your crying in private. Yep. I was embarrassed because of... of Crying in public embarrassed me, for one, and, and also, for two, I didn't want to make people feel bad. Mm-hmm. I remember being in a cocktail reception at the Final Four the year that Will died, and someone struck up a conversation, and it made me cry. And I know that made that man feel bad, that he thought he had driven me to tears, but he hadn't. But that, after that, I decided I've got, I've got to be in private when I cry. Mm-hmm. We, we moved to the back row at church. Uh, because the hymns did make me cry every Sunday, every single Sunday. Yeah, the hymns are difficult. They're and I powerful. wanted to be on the back row so I could escape. Mm-hmm. And, and giving yourself permission to leave a room or whatever, I think is important at work, and talking to bosses about the fact you may have to leave or whatever. Yep. 
Yep. And every, uh, every, everybody you encounter, every single person you encounter will understand that. Yep. Um, I, I wrote down what the editor said to you or the, what you put in the book. I thought this was really interesting. It said, he said, this story is incomplete without pain. I thought, isn't that true about our life? Isn't that true? If we tell our life without the pain, it is very incomplete because we all have pain. Well, and it connected me to you when you talked openly about, in the first chapter, about your pain. I felt very connected. I was very emotional. I felt very connected to you and now to your story. You know, no one can understand like those of us who have been there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know about you, but I thought I understood before. I thought I knew what my neighbor was going through when she lost her, her daughter, but I didn't. I didn't. No, it's it's such a such a horrendous biological and a sibling too, right, Hyde? Absolutely. It's the pain is so enormous. It's it's hard to describe. I was uh, commenting to Heidi that you were talking about how um, your other son, uh, Nate, right, mm-hmm. had uh, come in and and helped everybody, and we were talking about. That is so difficult for the siblings because they do have to do that, don't they, Hyde? We do naturally. I think I naturally did that. Yeah, we come in and we try to be strong for the family and try to, you know, support the family because our parents are going through so much. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, com. Great. And uh, Bill has comments and help and all sorts of things on that website, so visit him. Hi, did you have something you wanted to talk? I just wanted to ask Bill how long the bike trip took him and what he learned about himself with regard to the grief process along the way. Uh, thank you. The ride took 36 days, and, and um, what I learned is you have to treasure every moment. I remember an old boy down in Alabama, Georgia. I called him the Peach Angel, and he started talking to me, and he said, he said my mom and daddy grew me up real good. He said, if they ever die, he said, I don't want no house, don't want no money, don't want no car. All I want, he said, is what I know, selling peaches. Mm-hmm. And he had this peach stand by the side of the road, and that was his life, and he treasured it. Now, to most of us who live in New York or Kansas City or California or wherever, that wouldn't seem like a life, but that was his life, and he treasured it. And he was just one of many people I met across the country, and Actually, later on, I decided probably they were angels, that they were there to help me along. It was a remarkable experience. Well, if you had a one thing that you could say to our audience out there, newly bereaved, what would it be? There is hope, and lean on your, fa- on your friends and your family and, and your faith, and just take one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Through this journey. Um, how about your wife? Uh, what's she doing? I know you said that she goes to Compassionate Friends. Is she involved with them? Yes. Uh, Compassionate Friends was a big help for her. Um, we all heal at different paces, and we all... I don't even like that word healing. I don't like... There are two things I don't like, the word healing and the word closure. Uh-huh. Don't mm-hmm. talk to me about those things. <laughs> but we all go along this path at different speeds. Who was it, Heidi? Somebody said closures for bank accounts. Yes, closures <laughs> for bank accounts, not love accounts, Bill. Oh, I love that. We I all love know that. that. <laughs> I love that. But my wife's doing fine, thank you. She was a big help to me in the book, although um, she's a high school English teacher, um, so she was a good editor, although there were parts of it that she couldn't read. She just had to say, and I'll skip those chapters. Uh-huh. Now, that's interesting, and maybe that's a thought for us to think what we can't do, we'll skip that chapter. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, you, you know, there's so much in the book also. It's, it's almost sort of a manual for not only us bereaved, but also those, of us, those people who are trying to help us. You know, that, that, that I tell people, you, your friends are going at different paces, and it's going to be hard for you to know what they need. Yeah. But I said the main thing is just to show up and just say, I care. Right. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to mention your wife is because we, we hear this rumor so much that if you get have a child die, you're going to get divorced. You know, I've heard that, and are there any statistics to back that up? No, in fact, Compassionate Friends just did a study that shows that it's just the opposite. I mean, you know, not just the opposite, but there isn't a higher divorce rate, um, wow. you know, among people. But it's very um, nerve-wracking and scary for people who are newly bereaved. Mm. Well, yeah, Bill, and I think you talk about in the book how you actually felt more bonded with your wife. You felt like your marriage was very strong, even oh, yeah. though you had she, been through this. Yeah, she was my best friend before, and now she's... Double my best friend. Mm-hmm. Well, and she uh, supported Bill through this whole trip. Actually, and tell us about the camper and all that. We have a small pop-up tent trailer, and <laughs> Nikki would pull it to the next town and wait for me to get there, and then um, we would have dinner and go see the little town. And uh, if, she, if she passed me along the way, we would stop and have a picnic, which was always good fun. It was always good for me to see her coming. Uh, but she she was a big help on the bike ride, and... I think we've helped each other on our on our little walk through this this journey we're on. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm not a biker, but I'll tell you some of, some of it was harrowing in this book about the trucks going by and, uh, and strange people that you met, and I felt like I was really on the bike. <laughs> it, it, if you haven't done it, it's like grief. If you haven't done it, a cross country bike ride is really intimidating. Mm-hmm. But when you're in the middle of it, you just know you just keep on pedaling, and pretty soon you'll get to the top of the hill. Well, and it's it's a metaphor for grief. If you keep on paddling, pretty soon you will get through some of the worst parts. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I wondered if I love it, it after each chapter, uh, and it's kind of each day, isn't it? You write a little note of what you've learned that day or in that part of the journey to your granddaughter. Could you read uh, one of those notes? Yes, I'd be happy to. This was the day in Alabama, the one I've selected that. I went through some very poor country, lots of poor people out in the rural part of Alabama. And I wrote to Andy, I said, Andy, when you get the blues, hang in there and they'll go away. As Dr. Ralph Phelan in my hometown of Hobart, Oklahoma, often said, the best medicine is tincture of time. Tincture of time. And as I discovered on that poor country road, Choctaw County Road 32, hope is the most precious commodity. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.